Well, today's message has a little bit to do with marriage. One of the most amazing things to me is that God, the great I am, the creator, the omnipotent one that we just sang about, wants to be in relationship with us. And more specifically, he wants us to be married to his perfect son. You know, I have four sons. None of them are perfect. And I really think if we were in ancient times, I would have been good, and my wife and I would have been great at picking out their brides. Because when they grow up and have, you know, pick brides, they're just mostly dealing with testosterone. Uh, but I think that there is some, uh, some wisdom in that. In fact, in many cultures today, they still have arranged uh, marriages. And arranged marriages have, have a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today. We're beginning a new series today called Old School, New School. And I'm going to share a little bit about today about communion, sometimes called the Lord's Supper. If you're from a high church tradition, it's called the Eucharist. Eucharist is the Greek word for give thanks after he given thanks. Uh, he broke it. Jesus broke the bread. It actually took place at the Passover meal. At the Passover meal, they would eat unleavened bread uh, because it was a, a symbol of when they left Egypt and they were slaves and they didn't have time to let the bread rise because they were escaping the next day. And they had four different cups of wine during the two-hour meal. If you ever get a chance to celebrate Passover, that's good. And our, our communion tradition, our Lord's Supper tradition, our Eucharist comes out of the Passover meal in the Jewish culture. And it's very important because it relates to marriage. The Lord's Supper is a picture of Jesus' marriage to his bride, the church. I'd like you to read that with me. Here we go. The Lord's Supper, again, the Lord's Supper is a picture of Jesus' marriage to his bride, the church. If you belong to Christ, you are called the church. You are called the bride of Christ. A few weeks ago, Dave and Ashley did a wonderful job on the husband-wife relationship out of Ephesians chapter 5. And there in chapter 5 and verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And for a marriage to work, a husband has to love his wife like Christ loves, sacrificially. Uh, love is a love of service. It's a love that initiates, what can I do for her? And again, she has to have that same kind of love for him, it looks differently, and the roles are different, and that's why a guy can look at his wife and say, I can fix this problem. And she can say, all I want you to do is listen. I have a buddy in Texas raised four daughters, and he used to just crack me up because they would come to him as teenagers going, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And he would just look at them and he would say, fix the problem, solve the problem. And then they would just... But there's a difference between males and females, and sometimes it's easier for, for ladies to get their arms around this picture uh, about being the bride of Christ. And yet we're all the bride of Christ if we belong to him. The Jewish wedding that Jesus would have been referring to, and throughout the scriptures you find the Jewish wedding over and over again, had four parts. Actually, if you think about the Jewish wedding, it, it originates in Genesis 1. You know, in Genesis 1... Uh, God made the man and the woman, and he said, go and be, fruit, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Marriage is in Genesis 1, the very first chapter to the Bible. Marriage is also mentioned in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. They're waiting for the, for the groom to come and begin the wedding custom. And that's what Jesus would have been referring to in his day. The first part of the Jewish wedding is the engagement. We'll talk 
a lot about each of these. We'll unpack them. But the engagement took place on one day when the young Jewish man got together with the young Jewish bride and her family, and he paid a bride price for the privilege of marrying her. And that would begin point two, the betrothal. The betrothal was lasting from one to two years. You remember Mary and Joseph were betrothed. And that was a legal binding agreement. You were under contract, under a covenant, that he was going to pay this much to marry the young girl, and she's going to remain faithful to him until the time as the wedding occurs. The wedding occurs on the wedding night when the father of the groom gives the word. The central person in the Jewish marriage ceremony is the father of the groom. None of this mother of the bride stuff. And it was the father of the groom who said, this is when the marriage will take place. And then he would host at his home a wedding feast for his friends and the friends of both families. They would come and celebrate, usually two, as many as seven days, where they would enjoy the creation of this new entity, the Jewish family. And so these four stages would take place over a period of one to two years. And what I want to do is look at each of these as it relates to the communion service or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. In John chapter 14, we have a passage that is often shared at funerals when it's really a wedding passage. You know the difference between a wedding and a funeral. There's one less dead at the wedding. But in (laughs) old, old joke, John 14, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. What would take place at the engagement are two things. There was a contract and a cup. The contract was in writing. It would spell out what the young Jewish man was willing to pay her family for the privilege of marrying that young girl. By the way, as the father of four sons, this is a terrible idea. I'm I'm all into dowries. If we could reinstitute dowries, that would be good. She brings stuff to the wedding. But he would negotiate with her parents for the right to marry this young girl. Usually, in the Jewish culture, the man would be older than the girl. And often she would be a girl. In, In Mary's case, she was probably a teenager, 14 or 15 years old. But the bride price that he was going to pay for her would have been about a year's salary. So it would take a while for a young man to work and earn that much and save that much and then go to her parents and arrange for the marriage. He would come to her home with two things. He would lay the contract down on the table in front of her and her family, and then he would also bring some of his best family wine. And he would put a cup on the table in front of this young Jewish girl and fill it with the family wine, and now she has a decision to make. If she drinks the wine, she's agreeing to the... Uh, stipulations in the contract. That's what the communion cup is. When we drink the cup, we're saying we agree to the price that Jesus has paid to be our groom. Think about that. What price has Jesus paid for us? He's given the ultimate sacrifice. He's died for us. But in legal terms, the contract is now binding. She has all the time she needs to make up her mind, one or maybe two minutes. Probably this has all been haggled out beforehand. I would think if you wanted to keep peace in the family, you would not have your daughter marry someone she didn't like, and you would not want your son to marry someone uh, he did not want. Uh, but again, it, it, it was done. I've had friends, I went to seminary with guys from India who had arranged marriages. And one of my buddies knew his bride from the time they were six years old. He went home one summer, came back after the summer. He was married. We didn't even know he was engaged. He said, yeah, I've been engaged since I was six. And so there's something to be said for that. You know, it, he said, you take American, you, in America, you take... You take a hot soup, soup, hot soup and you put it in a cold bowl 
and the soup gets cold. In India, we take uh, cold soup and we put it in a hot cup and the soup warms up. That was his explanation of it. But the contract and the cup are now sealed and what will begin is a legal binding period of time called the betrothal. Say betrothal. Mary and Joseph had undergone this. And the betrothal was designed, ladies, I'm sorry, but it was designed to protect the man. It was designed to be a year to two in length, and it was designed so that if she was unfaithful and turned up pregnant, he could get out of the betrothal and get his money back. You remember when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, the Scripture says he was going to put her away secretly. You actually had to get a divorce to end the betrothal. It would be hard to get the money back because I'm guessing the family of the bride has already spent it or invested it, or bought camels, or whatever they did at that time. But that's what the betrothal was about. And during those 12 to 24 months, the bride waits and wears. She waits patiently for her groom to come and get the marriage to take place. It says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. The young Jewish girl who is engaged would wear a veil, and now she's called some things. She's called one who is consecrated. She's called one who is not her own. See, someone else has spoken for her and paid for her. She has been bought with a price. And Paul, again, uses this wonderful wedding picture of us. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We belong to a groom who is off building a place for us. See, when the, when the girl drinks the cup, the groom would say to her, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so he would go off to his father's house and there begin to build a wedding house, a place where he would consummate the union with his beloved, and they would generally live at or near the father's house. And so again, in, in, in the story of Mary and Joseph, you would think that It wouldn't take long. Joseph was a carpenter, and the house would not take long to build. But she has a veil, and she has some some new titles. The veil is kind of like a picture of the Holy Spirit. You know, we go out into the world, we're the the bride of Christ, and and the veil kind of hides a little bit about who we are. Some of our friends that don't know Jesus, they kind of get us, they kind of like us, but they're not quite sure because they don't see the whole picture. You remember the story in the Old Testament of Leah and Rachel. They were the wives of Jacob. And it's a cute story because he wanted to marry Rachel because the Bible says her eyes were hubba hubba eyes. Hubba hubba eyes. She was hot. But it says Leah had weak eyes. You didn't want to marry a woman with weak eyes because that meant if her eyes were weak and you pull her around the veil, she's probably pretty plain under there. But at any rate, that's what's going on in the culture. You would never go to a young woman who was wearing a veil and propose marriage to her because she's spoken for. She's consecrated. She's set apart. She's bought with a price. She's not her own. And so that's the picture going on in the New Testament of Christ and his church. The groom, on the other hand, has two things to do. He gets to wait and build. He's waiting for the word from the Father. Matthew 25 says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. That's the parable of the ten virgins. You see, during the betrothal, the the young gal would get together her bridal party. She would have her bridesmaids, and they would pick out what to wear. I'm sure it was chiffon pink robes with big bows in the back. Weddings. And the the virgins, the, the maidens, had to be ready because they didn't know when the wedding would occur. In fact, oftentimes it would happen at night. 
And the father of the groom would say, now's the time, and his son would get his groomsmen together, and they would go out into the village of this young girl and hold a mock kidnapping. But if you were to see a, a young man in the field building a bridal house, hammering away at his bridal home, you might say to him, when are you going to marry? When is the wedding? When's the big day? And in Matthew 24, there's a great verse that applies directly to this. We don't know when our wedding is going to be, but Jesus says in Matthew 24, but of that day, the day the wedding that actually happens, an hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Isn't that amazing? Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming back for his church. Only who knows? The Father. The central person in the Jewish wedding ceremony is the father of the groom. And so the bride is over here getting her party together, getting her dress together, getting her uh, oil in her lamp, wearing her veil, being called certain things. The groom's over here. He's building his chamber that he's going to celebrate his marriage in. He's waiting and he's patient. And for one to two years, this goes on. And then finally, when the time is right, mom and dad get together and the father of the groom says, tonight the wedding will happen. And the wedding night takes place. That is step three. Jesus, this whole time, has been going away to prepare a place for us. And we don't know when he's coming for us. We know that he's coming, but the great thing is he's had 2,000 years to prepare a place for us. I expect heaven to be pretty cool because if Jesus is preparing it, it'll be awesome, better than any house I've ever seen here. And when that night happens, this is what takes place. The wedding night happens, there's a shout, and there's a time for great reward. Matthew 25, 6, but at midnight... There was a shout, Behold the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Isn't that cool? Now who gives the shout? I think it's the friend of the bridegroom. John the Baptist in John chapter 3 calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. He's the best man. Now I don't know all about prophecy, but I know this. When Christ comes for his church, we're going to hear a shout. 1 Thessalonians mentions it again. Chapter 5, verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a what? Shout! And it will sound like the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. I don't know how you hear it, if it's a shout or the angel's voice or the trumpet of God. The first thing that happens when Christ comes for you and Christ comes for me, there's going to be noise. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Christ is coming for you if you are a part of his bride. And when he comes, there'll be a noise from the heavens, and you'll be gathered up. If you're alive when Christ comes, you'll be taken up to the clouds to be with him forever. If they're dead in Christ, they will get there before we will. And they will get to celebrate step four in the Jewish wedding ceremony. After the engagement, and after the betrothal, and after the wedding night, there's all sorts of stuff that happens. The big thing is the reward. If you belong to Christ, you get a reward for following him. The reward takes place on the wedding night. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. When you go to be with Christ, the first thing you're going to do is get rewarded for your faithfulness in Christ just as that young Jewish girl is now rewarded for her faithfulness in waiting for her bride, or bridegroom to come. The word judgment seat there is the word bema seat. The bema seat is the Olympic place 
where you got your medals, okay? The Bema seat in Corinth, and I've been there many times, is about twice as big as our platform, about twice as high, and you wanted to go to the Bema seat. It was a place of reward. And the judges would meet after your race was over or your wrestling match was over, and they would take the medal winner, and you would get a laurel wreath, okay? We're going to get crowns when we get to heaven. You would also get a sum of money, because there are no amateur athletics, especially at the University of Florida. You would also get citizenship in the new city-state that you had just won in. Isn't that cool? And when we get to heaven, we get citizenship forever in heaven. And your children, by the way, are given uh, free education in that city-state. So if you're a Greek citizen and the Olympics happened, you want to go to the Bema. You want the reward for following Christ. You want the reward for diligent faithfulness. And when the wedding happens, Christ will take us aside, and the first thing we are going to do is get our rewards. Now, the rewards for the believer are fine linen garments made of white because the next thing that happens, we'll have, have to have something to wear. And oh, by the way, in the original Olympics, they didn't wear clothes which seems to me to be a little painful, but they did them in the nude. I'm glad we don't have YouTube of that. (laughs) So you need something to wear because the next part of the wedding is the wedding feast. You're going to a party. Heaven is a party. Heaven is a destination wedding. I'm so excited about heaven. It's not sitting on a cloud harping on something. Oh, we're in heaven. Heaven is a destination wedding. I went to a wedding yesterday. It was in Winter Haven. I mean, are you kidding me? Winter Haven, what a miserable destination is that? That's as bad as Mulberry. Anybody here from Mulberry? Where are you, Darlene? Thank you. We love, we love Mulberry, Mayberry. But you know, I, I went to Winter Haven, and it was a wedding, and so what? Man, when I get to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb, it's going to be in the house of my Father, in a place that's prepared for me. I'm going to have food and drink like I've never had before, and it's going to be a time of joy and wonder and celebration. Revelation 19, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage supper or the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, which I think we get at the Bema Seat. Here's your new crown. Here's your new garment. Welcome to the feast. Isn't that great? And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven is so cool. And the first thing we do when we see our groom face to face is we're rewarded for our faithfulness and then we're blessed with a feast. And that's just the beginning of all the things that unfold at the end of the Scripture which lead into eternity. But in the meantime, we are given the Lord's Supper. In the meantime, we have this simple ceremony that that really is to point at who we are. And so we're going to take the Lord's Supper together today. And as we do it, remember some things. Remember who you are. You're the bride of Christ. Remember that we're to be patient and faithful until he comes again. Two action questions. Remember the Lord's Supper is a picture of Jesus' marriage to his bride, the church. And the question before you take the Lord's Supper for you is this. Are you invited to Jesus' destination wedding? Do you have that personal relationship with Christ? If you belong to Jesus, you are welcome today to have the Lord's Supper with us, to have communion with us. 
We don't have what some churches have, which is a closed communion. You don't have to be a member here. You just have to be a part of the bride of Christ. If you've never made that commitment, you need to get that taken care of. You know, you can go to a wedding and the bride and groom can look good and they can walk down the aisle and have all the music and the, and the flowers and the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, but until they stand in the front and say, I do, they're not married. And maybe you've been coming to church and you've been near the wedding and around the wedding you might have been a bridesmaid and maybe you've heard the message but you've never said, I do. Before you take communion, I want to challenge you to say, I do. You know, during our time of communion, Brian and Dave are going to be in the corners of the front. And if you've never asked Christ to be your groom, if you've never acknowledged the fact that he came and paid the ultimate price for you on the cross, your bride price is paid and you belong to him and he's coming back for you, I want to challenge you to do that today. Because then you're invited to Jesus' destination wedding. And for those of you who've got that question squared away, our job is to remain faithful for our coming groom until he comes for us. We're going to have communion, and as Brian and the band come back up here, just let me explain how this works mechanically. We've got five different stations in the front and two in the back. And what we're going to have you do is just take the wafer. We use unleavened bread, and please dip it in the cup. We had somebody at the last service drink the cup. That's fine. They do that in some traditions. There's nothing wrong with that. But here we're dippers. Okay. So dip it in the cup. And, and, and you'll take communion. You may want to, uh, you know, if you're here today as a family, dads, you may want to lead your family in this. And we're going to follow the Lord's instructions, which he gave to the Apostle Paul. So I'd like you to uh, bring the lights down and listen to this passage as we get ready for communion. Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The communion service, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, really involves past, present, and future. We look back at the past, at what Jesus has done for us. If you've made that commitment to Christ, you've honored the contract, the bride price has been paid for you, he's given his life for you. And we step back in, into the past and say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. And we do this until he comes. We ache for that time. He's preparing a place for us. He's coming for us. And we, we do this until he comes. But in the meantime, we live in the present. And the apostle goes on in 1 Corinthians 11 and he says, but let a person examine themselves so that you don't do this in an unworthy way. If there's something going on in your life, maybe there's a relationship that isn't what it needs to be, and you need to get that right before you take communion. Maybe there's a frustration with the Lord that you haven't figured out. Maybe just it's a day that you don't want to have communion. That's totally fine. Maybe you want to come up and pray with one of the pastors. You know, again, in some traditions, the clergy will serve you communion, and you can come and just cross your arms in front of you, and there's no need to take communion. But right now, just take a minute and examine our hearts. And Father, as we do, I pray that you would give us that overwhelming sense that remembers that you 
sent Jesus to be our perfect groom. And he gave the ultimate sacrifice. He paid the price for us, his bride. And I pray that you would find us as a church to be eager and to be patient and to be faithful the way the young Jewish girl would be so that we might be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world in which we live. Thank you, Father, for this simple ceremony. And now, Father, we we do this in Jesus' name. As you're led and as the music plays, you can come receive the elements. Again, Dave and Brian will be on the side.